0: Never forget her smile, never forget her hair,
1: but you know that she won't think You're listening to KTOO News, Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on January 11th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Letting Go. Live music was performed by Carl Reese. I
0: couldn't see her face right then. She had no tears for me. She had no tears for me. She had no tears for me. me.
2: Okay, our first speaker tonight is your new state representative from the Valley. Um, Justin Parrish enjoys dancing, reading, and studying new things. His work experience ranges from caring for adults with disabilities, to teaching English in China, to scaring bears with a slingshot. He was born and raised in Juneau, House District 34. Please welcome Justin.
3: Good evening, everyone. Well, I just quit, maybe the best job I've ever held. I was a paraeducator at Floyd Dryden, and it's a wonderful, it's a weird job. I'd spend days singing back and forth with a student because that's a way that he felt more comfortable communicating. And one of the beautiful things about it was I'd find these children who were isolated socially, maybe mentally. And I'd see so much of myself in them. You see, when I was a kid, despite a large and loving family, I spent most of my time alone. Now, whether that was a walk in the woods, whether it was getting caught up in elaborate story of my own devising, or whether, as I did on one occasion, I would just sit down in class, make not feeling social studies today. I'd rather practice piloting a fighter jet. <laughs> it was kind of lonely. And looking at other people as potential threats isn't a comfortable way to live. And it's a way that a lot of children, especially in middle school, see the world. And I remember sitting alone and trying not to draw attention to myself. I remember not dancing at any of the dances. And so when I saw students who were withdrawn like that, who were alone like that, I had some sense of where they were and I could start to take a few small steps towards them. I had one student who, who walked in slow circuits in the halls, sometimes stumbling from fatigue. And, Well, that's what he's got to do. So I walked with him and he seemed all right with it. And eventually we started talking. Eventually he started smiling and laughing and I figured out where he was and we started to not be alone. On another occasion, I found a student who loved nature, but otherwise was not excited about this. So we walked outside, and we talked, and I showed him the things in life that I loved most, and a few of them he really grabbed onto. And I remember standing with him one day, uh, winter's day, about a year ago, beside a small frozen pond. It was one of his great ambitions to walk on a frozen lake. And being as small as he was, a pond is basically a lake. And I wasn't, I wasn't totally sold on the idea of seeing my student jump onto the pond. And so I made a joke about myself falling through and he said, don't do that. I wouldn't want my favorite person to die. And you know, I I took a moment to collect myself again because that's, uh, what else could he ask for? And I remember some other small things like, no, no aspersion upon my father, but some days I forgot my lunch. And I remember being hungry. And so when I see a student in middle school hungry, I knew that there was some small thing that I could do to help. And for a lot of them, that, that really made a difference just to know that there was some place they could go and eat without any, any questions or, or judgment. And now, that's what I'm leaving. And I'll miss it. I'll miss my students. I'll miss my, uh, my co-workers and my friends. I'll miss the work that we did. But there's more at stake right now. There are larger things, there are larger threats to their well-being, to our well-being that a paraeducator can't do much about alone. And if I tell you the truth, there are things that a legislator can't do much about alone but I really believe that we have a chance together. Thank you.
4: All right, so our second speaker this evening is Mickey Leslie. Mickey was born in Kansas in 1934 and raised on a farm. She was a member of the US Air Force from 1952 to 1957. Mickey came to Juneau in 1965 and worked for the Department of Fish and Game. She fished, hiked, and hunted, bagging a moose in Yakutat, climbing the Chilkoot Pass, and rafted 465 miles down the Yukon River. These days, Mickey is retired and reads books. Please welcome Mickey to the stage.
5: When I left high school in 1952, I enlisted in the Air Force. It was about year three that I realized I was gay. And being way out in the country and country school, I didn't realize I was supposed to love somebody. I thought I, I was in love with my mule. <laughs> well, he was very handsome. You know. He had big ears. Hello. <laughs> He had big ears and a big, broad backside and clumpy feet. And I used to stack bales of hay and, and hug his head and tell him all my imagined problems and cry. And I finally realized he would just stand in there sleeping all this time. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, found out also that being gay in the Air Force wasn't the smartest thing you could do i had uh they had dishonorable discharges for people like that and uh you if you spoke to someone who had been discharged and lived in town and someone awaiting discharge in the barracks, you could get a discharge yourself for association and uh There was a a federal law in almost every state that against homosexuality, and you would go to a federal penitentiary. So there were a lot of roadblocks to being gay. And when I was in the uh, year five, I was stationed where they had three women in a room instead of two-story open bay barracks with 50 women. And the three of us got along pretty well, even though one was a little bit quirky. And (laughs) one one day, uh, one roommate went back to the room at noon and the, the other gal was on her bunk with her wrist slit. Well, she survived okay, but I was hauled in for questioning. And they insisted that she was in love with me. And for days on end, you go through that. Well, fortunately for me, that that time, the Air Force was going through uh, thinning of their ranks for the second time. And if you weren't going to reenlist, you could get out six months early. You never saw anybody run around in those buildings getting signatures like I did. (laughs) And fortunately, the OSI office was closed for the holidays because it was two days before Christmas. So they couldn't red light me, and they couldn't stop my discharge. (laughs) So in civilian life, I worked for the Army in in, uh, cryptology, which is what I did in the Air Force, and that's teletype and code-breaking machines. And uh, they were glad to see me because a single and woman always got all the dirty jobs and uh, naturally the night shifts. Well, that worked great for me working nights, no social life, no trouble. The only thing you could do is lose a job, lose your apartment, and go to federal penitentiary. (laughs) And since that work required a top secret clearance, there were two ways to go to the penitentiary for me. (laughs) But I I did that for 10 years, and I finally decided I needed something a little more exciting in my life. I'm a slow learner. So I moved to Michigan. Well, I wasn't there very long, and I met this gal named Lorraine. And uh, she fell head over heels from me without knowing me very well. I didn't quite know what to do about that, so I loaded my truck and fled to Alaska. (laughs) 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 Well, We corresponded for about eight months and she ended up on my doorstep. And uh, and then we discovered that Alaska had what they call blue cards. You could get removed from your job and your home if you'd bought one, your apartment, and forcefully forced out of the state. Well, Lorraine was a couple years older than me and had prematurely frosted hair. And a close neighbor even thought she was my mother. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a pretty good cover. <laughs> so in our 45 years together here, we never knew but one other gay couple. And uh, Lorraine, in 2010, she had to go in the Pioneer's home. And uh, she'd been gone for three years now. And I'm not here to let go of sadness and, and uh, grief for her. I'm here to let go of a lifetime of fear and hiding.
2: Our next speaker is Bhagavati Bran. Bhagavati is a Hindu goddess. She embodies infinite prosperity, infinite dispassion, infinite faith, infinite power, infinite wisdom, and infinite majesty. Bhagavati Brahn is definitely human and strives to embody a modicum of those qualities. She hails from the great and very far away state of Florida and loves Juno for the community feeling she gets here that is so similar to the intentional community where she grew up. Please welcome Bhagavati.
6: All right, so imagine you go through one of those life-shattering, identity-changing breakups, and then your ex moves in with your closest friends and family. So I grew up on an intentional community the places, my home, the people there raised me, they're as much my family as any blood relation of mine. So when my high school sweetheart and boyfriend of six plus years decided to move there instead of moving as planned with me to Denver, I was a little bit sad, but I was also really excited that these two parts of my life that had never really connected were finally gonna be a part of each other and would make my life more whole. We'd figure out the long-distance thing. We'd done it before. So fast-forward a year and find me sobbing on my kitchen floor trying to remember how to breathe because he broke up with me. And then he lived at my home. So when I realized that we weren't just going on a break, we were really breaking up, I was crushed. When I suggested we take a cooling off period, and then reestablish our friendship. He had been my best friend for the last seven years, and he flatly refused. I was crushed even more. And then a week later, when he was Facebook officially in a relationship with a girl I grew up with, I was really devastated. (laughs) So I tried to get him out of my mind. I unfollowed him and unfriended him on Facebook, you know, like you do. I was living in Denver, it was far away, But it wasn't quite far enough. Um, But he was still showing up, at least once a week. He's there in a picture or a post on somebody who I grew up with, some part of my family's life. And they loved him. They're like, oh my gosh, look how he's helping with this. Isn't this amazing? How great that he came here. Oh my gosh, heaven sent. (sighs) So I'm like, "Okay, well, it's his place now. I lost that. That's not mine anymore. He took over. Um, I don't need that anymore. That's fine. I'm good. I got my life in Denver. I got closer with my you know, my immediate family. My mom and my sister came and visited me in Denver and then in Juneau. And I, I didn't need to go home to the ashram. That was fine. So fast forward another two years, and a woman who was, I was very close to, From the ashram passed away suddenly and I realized I had to go home. I think, looking back, that is the only way I would have gone home. (laughs) Um, So I was nervous. I was nervous about seeing these people again. Would they embrace me? Had I been, you know, had I been gone for too long? Had they been replaced? I don't know. And I was nervous to see him because he was gonna be there because he lives there. Great. Awesome. So, I'm standing there, dressed in my white funeral sari, heart pumping, and I go through the dining hall outdoors, and my family embraced me like no time had passed, like nothing had happened. There was so much love there, and I was just right right back where I'd always been. Peter, on the other hand, treated me like an acquaintance that he really, really didn't want to talk to. Oh, hi, how's it going? Okay, I got to go this way. Bye. Okay. So, on the one hand, I was filled with so much love and, you know, sadness. I was there for a funeral, but there was just so much community feeling and love going on. At the same time, I was pissed. (laughs) So I was pissed at, I thought I was pissed at Peter, how he had done me wrong. And I realized that I was really pissed at myself. Like I had put myself in this situation. I had given seven and a half years of my life loving this guy who, like, didn't care about me at all. What was wrong with me? So at the same time, this is the first time I've been home for a couple years, my mom puts me to work going through stuff in my old room. I gotta clean it out. And amidst college freshman paperwork and old essays, I found three letters that he had written to me Our freshman year of college. We were first dating and we were first doing the long distance thing. And these letters were filled with these sweet words, promised back massages, and this young hopeful love. I almost didn't read them, but after I did, I wasn't upset. I wasn't sad. I just had this unbidden thought come to me. Oh, he really did love me. And uh, at that moment, everything was okay. I, like, dropped all the anger and everything. Now, that hasn't stayed with me. <laughs> In the eight months since, nothing has changed. You know, I've tried to reach out and it hasn't really worked out, whatever. Um, but knowing that, that I have that family there and that love and that one moment of clarity helps me let go of that more and more every time. Thank you.
4: Our fourth speaker this evening is Skip Gray. Skip, yeah. (laughs) Skip beat statehood to Alaska by two years. During the statehood ceremony, in front of what is now the city museum, he distinctly remembers seeing a lot of knees. As a young buck, he worked seasonal jobs for the Department of Fish and Game, worked on a forest service trail crew, and as a commercial fisherman. But an interest in still photography combined with working as a janitor cameraman for KINY TV when he was in high school eventually led to a career as the chief videographer for K2 TV. As such, he traveled all over southeast Alaska and to a lesser extent up north shooting stories on everything from studying fish from a submarine to tagging brown bears. He now spends his time between working for Gavel, Alaska, covering the legislature, and as a photo safari guide with Gastineau Guiding. When he applied for the guiding job, he told them that he was probably the only potential guide that has touched both a live brown bear and Sarah Palin and lived to tell about it. (laughs) Please welcome Skip.
7: Thanks for coming, everybody. It's great to see so many faces, and I swear I had no idea KTOO was the beneficiary of this (laughs) night when I signed up for it. (laughs) So up in the Alaska Range, south of Fairbanks, there's a wolf den, and it's perched on top of a little rock bluff pretty far up in a, a gently sloping valley that's very broad. And it's subalpine, there's a few trees scattered around, but it's mostly brush and willows and lichens and mosses, and pretty open country except for the brush and, and willows. And the pack has gone off hunting, but left a babysitter at the den to keep an eye on the pups. The pups are in the den, the babysitter's sitting out on the edge of the bluff looking down over the valley. The uh, babysitter just sits there for quite some time, nothing really going on. And all of a sudden, I see him perk up and look down the valley and look kind of uptight and scurries off down the valley and disappears into the brush. Nothing happens for a long time. I was thinking, that's kind of weird. Why would the babysitter abandon the pups? And uh, a couple hours went by, nothing else was going on. And the rest of the pack showed back up. And they're kind of sniffing around going, hmm, where'd the babysitter go? And uh, eventually all settled down around the den. And it was a pretty young pack it seemed, but there was one big alpha wolf that looked like the boss. And uh, he or she was uh, perched right in the same spot where the babysitter had been looking down the valley. And again, nothing happened for quite some time. And, uh, but eventually, I could see the hairs rise up on the neck of this alpha wolf. And he got up and looked down the valley and trotted off down the valley. And I'm going, hmm, that's weird. Um, and I hadn't seen the other wolf for a while. I'm looking around, and here's the babysitter walking back up the valley behind a grizzly bear just like 20 feet behind a grizzly bear. And um, the rest of the pack had followed the leader on down the valley. They were mostly pretty young looking um, and uh, not very experienced. And the bear was just walking up the thing, not too concerned about this single wolf behind him, kind of looking down at the ground. And all of a sudden, he looks up, and he's face to face with a whole pack of wolves. And wolves have been known to tear um, grizzly bears to shreds in pretty short order. It's happened. And conversely, the bear can tear a little wolf apart pretty easily, too, if he gets a hold of them. So it's a pretty uh, tense situation, and the bear suddenly realizes... This isn't a good situation, but he strides forward with a purpose and an attitude, um, but cautious. And all the younger wolves are just kind of scurrying around, nervous like, darting in and out. And either by accident or by design, I'm not sure which, they were keeping the wolf, the bear's attention, while the older wolf. Snuck around behind him, came up behind him, and nipped him in the hamstrings. The bear whirled around, took a swipe at him. The, the wolf ducked out much quicker than the bear, and the bear whirled around again to confront the rest of the wolves and was kind of like, you know, what, what's going to happen next? And he sat down on his haunches to make sure they couldn't get to his hamstrings again, and he sat there for a little while. The the wolves kind of just kind of closed in near him and, you know, still acting kind of nervous. But things sort of calmed down a little bit for a little while. And then he decided to get up and be on his way and started up the hill again. And evidently he wasn't real bright because he let the big wolf get down. The same thing was going on. The young ones were keeping his attention. The big wolf came down around behind him nipped him again pretty hard this time in the hamstrings and he swung around again and he's going like this and this time He really sat down on his haunches and he's not gonna let them uh, Get those again. So he's sitting there like this and the rest of the wolves just sort of circled around him stayed maybe 15 20 feet away and Then they just kind of sat back So everybody's just sitting there um of waiting to see what would happen next, and eventually, through no signal that I could discern, the wolves opened up a little hole in the circle that they had him surrounded in, 90 degrees from the direction of the den where he'd been heading. he kind of looked around for a little while, decided discretion was the better part of valor, and took <laughs> off through that hole. <laughs> off to a totally different direction from where he had started. They closed in behind him, followed along for little ways. The alpha wolf followed the farthest, finally turned around, came back. They went up to the den. He um, went on his merry way. So. He let go of the direction he was wanting to travel, <laughs> and they let him go. Um, but it was one of the coolest things I've seen in the wild, sorry. <laughs> we often think of animals, or at least some people do, of being these sort of mindless beings. but. Um, it was pretty obvious from this interaction, there was a lot of thinking going on. (laughs) They don't just act by um, instinct. And um, there was planning and um, strategy and maybe a little fear and compassion, but they somehow managed to work out their differences. And I often wonder um, if these two totally separate species can do that, you'd think we could do. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Asking only workman's wages, I go looking for a job. But I get no offers, just to come on from the halls on 7th Avenue.
1: You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News, Juno. These stories were recorded on January 11th, 2017 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Letting Go. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org.
2: Our fifth storyteller of the evening is Ryan Stanley. Ryan came to Juneau on the Matanuska in 1998 to play in a rock band at the Alaskan. He met his wife at Blue Muscle Cabin, and later his daughter was named after a special part of that trail. Her name is Blue Muscle Cabin. (laughs) Um, I don't know what the daughter's real name is. Ryan was traumatized in the early 80s by a movie called The Day After and now argues in favor of dessert before dinner, just in case. Here's Ryan.
8: Thanks. Uh, I learned how to let go of my high school sweetheart the summer after my first year at college Um, when I returned home to get a job paying off uh, all my long-distance bills from the school year. And it was a miserable job, which matched my state of mind, which was just kind of spiraling slowly down into this really pitiful state of despair and loneliness and sorrow and all those sad words. (laughs) And uh, the job, I just hated the job. I was a concessionist at a uh, corporate movie theater, and I think I hated the most how guilty I felt for selling people stuff that I knew was really cheap, but it was marked up so much. My only solace was to go down the strip mall to the pizza parlor uh, where they had an arcade game, which, and these are the arcades that you stand at, and it's an actual machine. <laughs> <laughs> and, My game was NBA Jam, okay? And uh, NBA Jam was basketball, two-on-two basketball. And my favorite part was if you made three baskets in a row, the announcer would say, he's on fire! And uh, the ball would turn into a fireball and it'd have black smoke behind it. And (laughs) so that was my happiness that summer. (laughs) And, And the elation would last as I walked down the strip mall and would fade and would vanish entirely with the clunk of the time clock. And um, it was just not a very fun job for me. The low point was probably when I had to go into a packed movie theater and clean up a pool of vomit. And um, I, I guess I never saw Free Willy the same after that. <laughs> but, and so I was back to the, back to the arcade game to play my only solace into the arms of NBA Jam, where I I felt some success, at least. And so I'm going to put my quarter in, and this 10-year-old kid comes up, and he says, you want a verse? And I said, verse? And he said, you know, play against me. And I said, okay. And so I plugged my quarter, he plugged his, and I start picking out my players. And he starts entering in this weird pattern, like jump, jump, shoot, shoot, left, left, right, jump, jump, shoot, left, left, right. And I realized he's entering in a cheat code. I'd heard of cheat codes, but I had never used them before. And his cheat code unlocked a special player named Air Jordan. (laughs) And Air Jordan had a head bigger than normal and he was faster than normal and stronger than normal and could shoot and his dunks were amazing, flips with the tongue and all that. And the tip-off happened, and Air Jordan took the ball and dunked it, and then I tried to inbound, and he stole the ball and dunked it. And then I did inbound, and I took some dribbles, and he stole the ball and dunked it. And that's three in a row, right? And so the announcer, he's on fire! And by the end of the first quarter, the score was 20 to two, I think. And I, you know, had some chops at this game because I'd spent a lot of time, I dedicated myself to it, In fact, on the leaderboard, you know, in 1993 in Spokane, Washington, on the NBA Jam Game, in the top 10, my initials, ZZZ, were right there. So (laughs) I was kind of dedicated to it, and the first quarter went by, and I, I, the kid kind of went to walk away, and I plugged the quarter for him and for me, and he kind of, looked at me curiously and jumped back in because I don't think he recognized or knew or in no way that he could have, but I had studied some philosophy in college. (laughs) And I'd read some Freud. So I knew that at some strange level, I enjoyed the pain. And the the one good thing that I had that summer, here was this kid who was going to take it away from me. But I knew that if I could endure enough pain at some weird Freudian level, I would be able to give myself permission to let go of my heartache. And so, plug those quarters. We jump back in for quarter two. The, the beating <laughs> resumes. And all I can do is just kind of hang in there and um, try to stick to what I know, try to stick to the fundamentals. And I learned a lot during my summer playing that game. And one of the things that I learned was the perfect moment to steal the ball was right before somebody's leaping up for a dunk. And so Air Jordan would leap for his dunk and I could swipe the ball right at that moment. And he would, the kid would start getting frustrated. And so I figured out how to do this more and more and more and more often. And by the, the third quarter, I plugged a quarter for him as well. He, I remember him kind of thinking or looking at me weird. And so I was able to kind of close the gap quite a bit during the third quarter. And then I realized that his other player, Scotty Pippen, was just standing there looking up in the stands, never used. And so what did I do? Well, I spread the court, okay? So that's where you spread your players, and Air Jordan wasn't fast enough to chase the ball So I could get some pretty good high percentage open three-point shots. And I closed the gap. And I knew that I was I knew that I was kind of in the game because the kid was getting more and more frustrated. And instead of doing any kind of like special moves, he would just make a beeline for the basket. And so with five points left, you know, I had made a basket, I stole the ball from him, I made another basket with two points left, and that was a three in a row, and the announcer said, he's on fire, and I could feel just the kid seething next to me. And, and so he got his inbounds. He was still ahead by two points. He dribbled a bit. He went to do one of his lavish dunks, and I swiped it at the right time. And then I let go, and, you know, it was a fireball flaming through the air with the black smoke, and then when it went through the hoop, there was a nice mushroom cloud, and... He just slammed on the controls and pushed himself away. He was so upset. And, but I'd had a little bit of a breakthrough, I realized. Like, maybe I had endured enough pain. And I wanted to give him a little bit of wisdom. But I had to get back to my job. So I just said, in your face, Air Jordan.
4: Uh, Okay, our next speaker tonight is Linda Buckley. Linda has lived in Alaska for decades. Wait, there's, sorry, there's two exclamation marks there. Linda Buckley has lived in Alaska for decades. This year, she let go of the family home in Fritz Cove and moved to Star Hill, finally, finally becoming a townie. She has always been a townie at heart and now loves walking to some of her favorite coffee shops, theaters, and art events. She also let go of her father this year who lived to the ripe old age of 99. That has four exclamation marks on it. But tonight, Linda will share her story of the most difficult letting go of her life. It happened in the 60s on the island of Kauai. Please welcome Linda.
9: your children are not your children they are the sons and the daughters of life longing for itself they come through you but they are not from you and though they are with you they belong not to you so i told the story for the last time anchored up off the coast of canada with a bunch of girlfriends actually two girlfriends We were taking a boat from Alaska to the San Juan Islands, and we had a layover day. And the skipper said, let's tell our deepest, darkest secret. Linda, you go first, (laughs) of course. So I told this story of myself in the 60s on Kauai, far away from my very strict Baptist family where I had been really, the people that know me and you know probably thought I was a hippie. No, I carried my Bible to high school. I mean, I really, you know, my whole life was around the church, uh, all through college. I went to a, a religious college as well. And then I was in Hawaii. <laughs> you know, that was in the 60s. That was like going to the moon for me. And, there were movie stars there. I met Elvis Presley. I mean, it was really exciting. Yeah, well, there's a little more about that it wasn't such a great meeting. But anyway, <laughs> I, um, I fell in love you know, with a local guy, and it was kind of like Peace Corps for me. I mean, it was so culturally interesting, especially if you're hanging out with a local guy. He taught me how to spearfish for lobster with lanterns at night. We ate two-finger poi we popped limpets off of rocks and washed them down with primo beer. I had never drank either. That was another thing. No dances, no no drinking, n- no makeup, no movies. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I was drinking beer. I was going to the movies. <laughs> and I was in love with a guy who lit the, the tiki lamps at the Coco Palms Resort and wore a little thingy and, and was on all the postcards. I mean, he was the quintessential most beautiful Hawaiian man ever. And he was 11 years older, very experienced. <laughs> and he would play his ukulele, you know, in the moonlight and he'd sing. kuu morning dew, Ali mai, ali'i mai. You know, I wanted to say you had me at two finger poi, but it was that song, I got pregnant. It's one thing they don't teach you, when you're raised in a very religious home in that that era, um, you can't go to movies or shows or things, but lots of things happen in the back of Plymouths, Dodge (laughs) Chevrolets, and on the beaches in Hawaii. So I panicked because I thought, I can't let my parents know. I mean, I was just, I just didn't want to disappoint them. And I just thought, okay how am I going to, you know, you can't really hide a pregnancy, you know, maybe the first three months or so. So I thought, okay, well, they, I had a job and they didn't expect, you know, that I would be home until summer. So I decided to give the baby up for adoption. And uh, I did. And I handed, you know, at that time, you signed away any rights to know this child. And um, on July 16th, I had a baby boy, he weighed seven pounds, 12 ounces. And literally, I saw you know his head and his black hair, and then I never saw him. And as I was telling the story, remember now, I'm not in Hawaii, I'm on this boat off the coast of Canada. And I told my girlfriends that um, on July 16th, he would be 35. And that um, if there was one thing on my bucket list, it was to know that he had a good life you know, to know that he was alive. But I said, you know, in a couple of weeks, you know, it will be his birthday. And we, uh, we finished that cruise, and on July 16th, that summer, I was in Santa Cruz um, attending a wedding of some really close friends here in Juneau. And there was a big reception and lots of people and lots of music, and when I came home, there were 11 messages on my voicemail. And the seventh message said, "Hi, this is Bruce Hoffman. I'm calling about an event we shared on July 16th. Call me." And it was first of all, I've never heard of this person. It was a North Carolina um, area code, and I don't know anyone in North Carolina, so I decided I must have met him at that reception in California. So I deleted the message. And. Thankfully, three days later, <laughs> he called again. And he said, um, "He said, hi, this is Bruce Hoffman. Did you get my message? And I said, yeah, do I know you? And he said, you tell me. And I said, I hate that game. No, I don't think I know you. <laughs> I said, he said, well, we shared an event on July 16th. And I said, um, were you at the wedding in Santa Cruz? He said, no. I said, are you a telemarketer? You can imagine how hard this is for him. And he took a deep breath and he said, we shared an event on July 16th in Hawaii. I said, are you my son? He said, are you my mother? And of course I was. And uh, so I learned from that when you completely let go of something, I had really let go of ever knowing him. And a month later, we met um, in New England. His wife um, has a family home there, and uh, it turned out I was an instant grandmother. Peter was four, Nick was five, and Matthew was three months old. And I held Matthew on this hot New England night. This little three-month-old baby boy with his little, you know, cheek and that smell of a, of a the. the this a very unique smell of a new baby. And I looked at his father, who I never got to hold. And I, I just whispered a prayer of gratitude. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Our final storyteller of the evening is Chris Sell. Crystal has lived in Juneau since 1995. She's worked at Juneau Police Department since 1997 and is currently a lieutenant there. She just celebrated a sixth wedding anniversary with her husband, Pat Gullifson. She grew up in Montana and graduated from the University of Montana in 1990. She made her living as a television anchor and reporter until her father got tired of paying her car insurance. She sold real estate for a few years, including two years in Juno. Her hobbies include triathlons and CrossFit. Please welcome Chris.
10: So, yes, I, I am Chris Sell, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm gonna need a little audience participation. Now, don't worry, you don't even have to stand up. This is all mental. I want you to think about your favorite pet grudge. Now, maybe this grudge comes from work. Maybe there's someone at work that took an opportunity you thought was yours, or they just don't seem to be working as hard as you are. Maybe this grudge is something at home where you have a family member that you think is just not stepping up not realizing their potential maybe not helping with a loved one maybe this grudge is one of the best grudges and this is having been wronged by a significant other that's a grudge that if it was a puppy you just hold it and pet it it's like literally a pet grudge are you just like, oh I, I so don't get this? Okay, so let me help you. So you're going about your errands on a Saturday and I think we're all required under CBJ ordinance to go to Fred Meyer and then recycling and then Costco <laughs> because that ensures that you will see whoever you have this pet grudge with. During that but okay if you still have not thought of your pet grudge You're going about your errands and suddenly you find yourself surprised to be pulling into Costco. I don't remember driving here I forgot to turn off at recycling Did I use my turn signals and you should always use your turn signals people? So hopefully everybody's got a grudge that they have thought of now So um, I have been a police officer for almost 20 years, and I have not enjoyed that time as much as I could have because I let some things hold me back. I had some of those grudges. I had things that I could think about, and I could disappear for hours into the resentment of why things weren't a certain way or how come they worked out that way, and... And you know, am I a victim somehow in this situation? So I was pretty good at that. I could mentally keep myself pretty occupied. Then on August 4th, 2014, something changed for me. That was the day that I was notified of my father's death. And I was doing the Achman Triathlon. Elite. I think you might have been there. Uh, she was competing, I was merely participating. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> The love that made it to the finish line ribbon. So I had finished the first two sections. I'd done the swim in the lake and done the bike ride. and, And I'm coming in on my bike. And there's a sergeant from JPD there, Chris Gifford. And he's waiting for me at the bike transition, which is not a support service JPD offers to its lieutenants. So. I'm wondering, why is Chris here, and if he needed me for work, why didn't he just call me on the bat phone? I always have the bat phone on me, and it's always on, except in the water. So I can't figure out why Chris is there, and he comes up to me, and he's obviously very tense, and he tells me, Chris, I I need to tell you that your father has died. And I, I start to cry, and and he's standing there and he's still, he's just rigid. And I said, Chris, what else? There's something else. And he said, he took his own life, which is a really tough thing to have to tell somebody. And I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I, I had seen him two months earlier. I had not seen this coming. Now in hindsight, I'm not surprised. I cannot endorse that decision, but. You'd have to know my dad. My dad was six foot four and always had a cowboy hat on. He was just as salt as earth that they come, help any neighbor, great guy, so dignified. I had never seen him in shorts my whole life. (laughs) So, um, he, yeah, he was a a man who considered a button-down cowboy shirt and an undershirt to be lightly and casually dressed. So... Um, He he was a really dignified man, and as he got older, he was 82, I knew he didn't want to go into any kind of assisted living. For him, thinking about sitting in a plastic chair, getting hosed down and treated like a child, it wasn't going to happen. And while I was devastated, I understood. So I'm traveling back to Montana, and, and this is a good note to self. If you're traveling and you want to be left alone, if you just randomly start sobbing, people will give you, like, way personal space. They will, I mean, you know, they really do not want to have anything to do with you. So, so I had a lot of room traveling to Montana. And uh, get there, and, and my husband and my father were great. Uh, I, I mean my, my husband and my brother, um, of course dad is gone and we have com- company there and we're going through all the motions and he was very popular so people never stopped coming by the house and I was so stressed even though my brother and I were acting like the people our father would expect us to be. We didn't squabble over the estate. We were generous with each other. We agreed to things in broad strokes. And dad would have been proud because we didn't always get along that well. <laughs> so I was so stressed though, so I, and I had so little relief. And the, the only like, moment I had is that this realtor showed up to ask us if we wanted to sell the family farm. And it was the day after we had buried my father and I still had a house full of family and he pulled into the driveway, and, and the rest of the family, they just stayed in the house. They're like, oh, Chris has got this. Don't, don't go out there. If you don't see it, you can't be subpoenaed. So, so it's probably only the fact that I had previously worked as a realtor that I did not underline my two-minute deadline for him to get off my property with a shot from one of the firearms. So he left. And uh, we proceeded with everything that was going on, the organizing and the trying to figure out what was gonna happen with the farm and there's all this stuff to deal with. And at the same time, I've got this incredible sense of urgency coming to me and I, I couldn't shake this feeling, I'm running out of time. I am personally running out of time to be the person I want to be in this world because what my dad's death showed me is no matter how much time I have left, tomorrow I'm going to have one less day than I do right now. I am running out of time. So it slowly came to me that I had to get rid of all these entertaining but energy-sucking negative pet grudges I had. I had to get rid of them and that's not easy, because they have a well-worn path in your brain. It's like a thousand racehorses have been going around this one track, and so it's difficult to get rid of them. So when I would start thinking about one of them, sometimes I'd just run. Just run. And, and i run really badly, as you might notice. So um, I'd run or I'd swim, and I don't swim particularly well either, and so I would have to really concentrate, because I have to know when I'm going to breathe. So. I would do those things to try and distract myself. And at first it was so hard, it was months of that. And then as the longer I did it, the easier I got. It's like the pets just kind of wandered off, started sniffing other bushes, maybe found somebody else to to make forget the drive from Fred Meyer to Costco. And so it, it did get easier. Now, even a year after that, it wasn't for certain, because they are sneaky and persistent little devils. And they're waiting. They're waiting for you to have that thought, why didn't I get that promotion? And then they're back. And they're right back to hijacking your brain. So you have to be diligent. But I, I had made some progress. Um, and so now I'm starting to clear out some space in my head. I'm starting to get some room. and. Things are happening in the rest of my world. Uh, This last year has been one of the worst for law enforcement ever. We have been so worried about about other people working in this industry, and you can't help but think to yourself, every time I step out of a car, is somebody with mental challenges going to have seen something down south and decided to act on it themselves? Am I going to just be going about my business trying to, to help, and have something happen and my family's worried and there's all these things going on but but thankfully I would cleared out some room in my head I had some space to think about as as part of a group that's supposed to be leading when you're scared is the important time to lead when you're not scared it's not that big of a challenge so one of the things that I had thought of doing, you remember the the big hot dog barbecue downtown in Marine Park, we had all those hot dogs? I was trying to bring the community together in a time where incidents in other places were dividing us. That here in Juneau we are still together. We are still neighbors and friends, and we can get together and tell stories and be together and it's okay. We are more than our jobs. We are more than our societal roles. And as that type of thing started to feel better, I sat down one day and I thought, what can I do personally to try and improve the quality of life of every single person in Juno?" and it can't cost any money? Uh, I thought that's a big challenge and that's where the year of kindness came from. Now some of you may have heard of the year of kindness. Has anybody been following that? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And uh, please uh, follow us, and, and I'd love to see everyone out and about in Juneau. Thank you.
0: thank you. But her laughter warmed the darker skies. And her smile, it took the blues away. I last saw her on the sidewalk. She was walking
1: away. I couldn't see her. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on January 11th 2017. The theme for the evening was Letting Go. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, Kristen Stouter, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Carl Reese. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. Sheila, I last saw her on the sidewalk She was
0: walking away Though I couldn't see her face right then She had no tears for me She had no tears for me